you're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. Several years ago, as part of tax reform, we got rid of the corporate AMT and replaced it, at least allegedly, with the beat. But no sooner had the dust settled on repeal than we started talking about Mintax. Some of that discussion arose in the guilty context, and more broadly, some was in the context of Pillar 2. And now, yet another Mintax has hit the desk in the United States. This one doesn't quite look like what we had been envisioning when we had those other discussions, so we thought it would be a good idea to walk through some highlights of the new Mintax and explore some of those gaps. Joining me to discuss are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, and Doug Palms, my fellow principal from Washington National Tax. And finally, our futures program guest, Savon Kozar, a Washington National Tax Senior Manager, rejoins the program as well. Welcome. Okay, so Sivan, this is right around the corner, isn't it? Who's in scope? Yeah, so the new corporate AMT is now in effect. It's going to apply to tax years beginning after 12-31-22, so that's right around the corner. And for this corporate AMT, the scope is only going to include very large corporations, multinational groups that have over a billion of adjusted financial statement income, and that's a net number. There are also still a lot of unanswered questions about which financial statements you would use, but generally this is going to be the group audited financial statement, so the financial submitted to the SEC or a foreign equivalent like a 10K you know, query what happens if you don't have audited financials, sort of unclear at this point, but if you're a very large group with over a billion of income, probably a good thing to be aware of. And then one other thing to note is for foreign parented groups, there's an additional test on top of that 1 billion test that's going to bring them in scope if they also have at least 100 million of U.S. related financial statement income. All right. So, Sivan, if you had a foreign-based multinational, as we often do, that has a number of U.S. consolidated groups or a number of separate U.S. taxpayers, are you looking at an aggregate of their U.S. income? Yes. For scope, aggregation rules are going to apply to generally bring in all corporations that are connected by greater than 50% ownership, even if they are separate taxpayers for U.S. tax purposes. And this is pretty much the way the BEAT applicable taxpayer test works, too. So if you do have three separate U.S. consolidated groups, you would add up the financial statement income of all three to see if you're in scope. And if you have, say, a U.S. branch or a partnership interest, this includes the U.S. effectively connected income of the branch or the distributive share coming through the partnership. And then one other thing to note is that there is this additional test for foreign parented groups that applies aggregation based on which entities are on the consolidated financial statement for purposes of the one billion test. So you're going beyond just the controlled group of corporations rules. Once you determine scope, the tax is going to apply to different taxpayers on a separate basis. Courtney, 
I think if we're focused on ECI, that does actually put pressure, not that there wasn't any pressure, but even more pressure on foreign-based multinationals who have activities in the United States to file their 1120Fs and to get that right. I can just imagine being on the cusp, if you will, of the permanent establishment U.S. trader business discussion, not filing, thinking in the back of your head that... Not a big deal, right? Exactly. If the U.S. comes in and says, oh, no, you've got a VE and you've got a bunch of ECI, oh, and PSX dips the scales. So now you're in and you're in every year and I need my 15%. (laughs) That's kind of a bigger deal, right? Well, not only that, oh, and you didn't file your 1120F. So not only do you get that incremental profit number as your taxable income, but we're going to deny your deductions. Yay, under 882C2. And then your gross income becomes your taxable income. And then you're really in a world of ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. It's like, it, it just get, it's like rolling down the hill, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, if you are a foreign based multinational, I think the bottom line is if you have unincorporated activities, please follow your 1120Fs if you otherwise meet that global income threshold. Public service announcement. (laughs) Get it done. (laughs) Right. What happens with respect to those taxpayers that are hovering around those thresholds? It's going to be rough to hover around the threshold because there's also a rule that once you're an applicable corporation, so once you're in scope for this tax, you remain in scope unless the secretary decides to let you out, either because you've gotten too small or because you've been acquired or, you know, some part of the group has been acquired. So there's actually a lot of pressure once you're in scope. There's good news though, right? Yeah, so here we are looking to the average annual income of the group for the prior three years. So if you're testing a particular year, there's smoothing over the prior three years for the income test. Okay, so once you're in, you're always in almost like a P-fix situation. Then what happens? So once you're in, you need to determine whether you owe the corporate AMT And there you're going to look at the difference between 15% of your adjusted financial statement income minus an AMT foreign tax credit over your regular tax liability plus BEAT to determine your minimum tax liability. So, Zifan, we've got a bunch of clients actually who have NOLs, and I understand it can be pretty challenging on dealing with NOLs under the new rules. That's right. Yeah, NOLs are treated a little bit differently depending on the purpose. And so for the income test, you generally won't be able to include their financial statement NOL against that income test. So that's going to be a big difference for folks who've been operating with existing NOLs over some period of time, right? So this will be a new tax possibly coming on for them that they hadn't expected or otherwise had. Yeah. Yeah, had to deal with previously, right. right? Okay. This was a new addition late in the Senate bill that wasn't there last year when it was introduced by the Build Back Better Act. But once you get into the liability, there's a provision that does allow you to bring in NOLs. They're limited to post-2019, but it does let you bring in pre-enactment NOLs. In determining financial statement income, you adjust for those NOLs. 
in one trap for the unwary is let's say you had a loss in 2020. The first year you're computing the AMT is 2023. So you think, oh, I had this loss from 2020. But if that loss would be absorbed for financial statement purposes in 2021 or 2022, it's not available. Even though you didn't do the min tax computation for 21 and 22, other than for the three-year average purpose, you no longer have that 2020 loss. So that's something to be aware of, that you're not just trying to identify post-2019 losses. You're seeing what actually would be carried for financial statement purposes into 2023 when you do the 2023 computation. That's a good point, Doug. And that's even weirder now because you're not bringing in those losses to do the income test. Because remember, if you're testing 2023, you are going to look to 2020, 2021, and 22 to determine whether you're in scope. I know credits are a never-ending source of entertainment in these min-tax discussions. How do they work here? So it depends what credits we're talking about. The general business credits are going to come back in at the end. So once you compute your min-tax liability for the year, you're going to be able to reduce your allowable general business credits. And that's going to be the same as for regular tax purposes. Wait a minute. So because, let's think about this, because you take BEAT into account, BEAT is going to give you a haircut on your general business credits. Love that. Often an issue with our clients. But that's going to increase the amount of taxes paid for AMT purposes. So maybe that gets restored. But then at the end of the day, whatever the AMT is, then you get your general business credits to offset that liability. Is that that's That's right. right. That's Mm -hmm. right. And you get to take into account in terms of determining what's the amount of the allowable general business credit, you get to take into account your AMT liability in addition to your regular tax liability. Okay. But that's just the general business credit answer, isn't it? (laughs) I guess it gets more interesting with respect to others. That's right. I mentioned that you get an AMT foreign tax credit, but this foreign tax credit is structured very differently than the tax credit that you're going to be using for regular tax purposes. There's no section 904 basketing or limitation based on source of income, but also generally no carry forward except for certain CFC foreign taxes. And that's just because those are potentially haircut to 15% of the CFC income that the taxpayer is including in adjusted financial statement income. So the excess then of any amount that's haircut is allowed to carry forward, but only for five years. So who knows if you even ever get to take those foreign tax credits. I would assume that because you're going to get a haircut in the AMT space, you're already taking a haircut in the BEAT space. Maybe there isn't a total restoration. That mathematic that you get on the Section 38 credit side doesn't necessarily happen here. That's and, right. Okay. And is there anything else about the basic outlines of index before we start looking at Pillar 2? The only thing that might be worth mentioning is that at the last minute, now you use tax depreciation instead of book, so you don't have a book tax difference for that. 
that's generally a favorable thing to use tax depreciation. But let's say you were a taxpayer that made a huge amount of capital investment in earlier years. And now, say, say in 2023, you're not making new capital investment, but you would be depreciating your assets that you have from before. For book purposes, you have to add back the book depreciation on those assets. So you may have to do the add back without getting new accelerated depreciation for tax purposes. So it's a really complicated analysis whether this is beneficial, but in generally, taxpayers who regularly buy capital equipment and depreciate it faster for tax, the book that would be a positive development. Okay, maybe we pivot a little bit and we talk about MinTax kind of on a more global basis. As I said before, we talk about MinTax and MinTax and even more MinTax. They're not all the same. And so I think it'd be a good idea to walk through and figure out how not the same it is and whether any of these distinctions actually make a difference, because I suspect the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, Doug, what are the big picture items that we need to work through from a calculation perspective? Great question, Courtney. There are different features to each of these regimes where there are meaningful differences. They include the difference of the treatment of losses, the difference in treatment of credits, and then the adjustments that we talked a little bit about before, that you make certain adjustments for the book min tax that you may not make for the pillar two, and vice versa. For instance, stock-based comp, that's not an adjustment that's made for the U.S. book min tax, but it is something that is adjusted for pillar two purposes. And there are other examples of adjustments like that as well. So this seems, just from a practical perspective, a bit of a nightmare to get through all of the different buckets to get to what I need to in order to figure out if I have tax here. Is that fair to say? They're two separate and very complicated computations where there are a lot of unanswered questions. So, yes, it just means there's a lot of work to do on both fronts. Maybe, do we want to start with credits? The one interesting difference between the two regimes is what they do with general business credits. This would be general business credits at the U.S. taxpayer level. So for the corporate AMT, once you figure out your difference under this alternative minimum tax computation and your regular tax, plus Pete, that Savon talked about, you do get the benefit of general business credits at the end of the day. It's generally a positive thing. For Pillar 2, if you're getting non-refundable general business credits, they work against you in establishing that you're paying a 15% ETR in the U.S. because there is no mechanism that adjusts for the credits and you're going to pay less tax, which possibly cause you to fall below the 15% in the U.S. So the general business credits can work against you in that case. So this is an example of the type of detail that you need to look at in doing the respective computations and elements that help you in one of the regimes may hurt you in the other regime. So you just have to look at it very carefully. Agreed. And even just getting through these from a practical perspective, it seems very circular. And then it sounds like unless what comes through Treasury around regulations gets a fix for this. You're right. The U.S. Baseball Nationals, in many cases, feel like they're going to be paying the cost for it. The last thing we want to do is to pay up a min tax and then to have it not count and then have to pay yet another min tax. Absolutely, Kim. 
Yeah, a lot of interesting questions on how the U.S. Bookman text will figure in, how it will be analyzed for purposes of Pillar 2. For example, is the U.S. Bookman text a covered tax for purposes of Pillar 2? Will it count toward meeting the 15% ETR? And we think that the answer is likely yes to that question because it is now part of the U.S. income tax regime, just another aspect of it. Then once to cover tax, the next question would be, is this U.S. bookman tax, when it's on domestic income, would it be considered a qualified domestic minimum top of tax regime, the QDMTT as it's referred to? And that's where you get to those interesting questions, like the difference in the treatment of general business credits. There is differences between the treatment of general business credits that very well could cause the U.S. Bookman text not to be a good QDMTT. The other interesting item, if you are subject to AMT, you get a credit carry forward that you can use if your regular tax exceeds the corporate AMT in a subsequent year. What's interesting is how that is accounted for, which I think create a deferred tax asset, that credit carry forward. But when you use the credit carry forward and you reduce your regular tax in a subsequent year, if that happens, you're reducing your rate for pillar two purposes that would possibly push you below the 15% ETR that you need. And there's currently no mechanism in pillar two to deal with this issue for credit carry forwards. And that applies to foreign tax credit carry forwards and other credit carry forwards as well. But this happens with AMT credit carry forwards. So that's just another interaction that has some interesting ramifications. There's also the big picture question of whether the min tax would qualify as a pillar two style IIR. It does bring up the taxpayer share of CFC earnings, and that's where you get into all these differences in the computation, like jurisdictional blending being required, being done for purpose of the book min tax, but country by country being required for pillar two. That's a huge difference. There's many examples of the difference between the two regimes in analyzing the book min tax as an IIR, the different adjustments that you make. You get a substance-based carve-out for purposes of Pillar 2, but you don't for the book min tax. So lots of differences. So it makes it unlikely to be considered a good IIR. I don't want to interrupt your flow if you have stuff, but also the rate is 10.5%. I'm guilty. So it's just a further problem. Yeah, really good point. And that when those earnings are taxed under the book min tax for the limited number of taxpayers that, that will apply to, that that will raise the tax on the CFC earnings to 15. You know, that difference would probably push it down, which would help. That's right. One other area that has been causing some questions with some of the clients I've been talking through is certainly how to deal with losses. Yeah, I mean, losses come in in different ways under the min tax. Savan talked about some of that, but in this comparison, what's interesting about the book min tax is when you're looking at whether you have a loss, for instance, in your COC group of entities, You cannot take that loss against other income in the group on the U.S. side or in branches or whatnot. That's while if you have losses in your foreign branches, for example, overall CFC loss, which is called a negative adjustment, is carried forward to subsequent years. You can offset them against 
your U.S. income. You know, for Pillar 2, everything's done on a country-by-country country regime, so that there's no netting of loss in one country against income in another country. You have to kind of model both regimes when you're doing U.S. taxes, even before you consider Pillar 2. So it sounds like we all need Excel classes. To get through all of yes, this. Yes, it, it just got that much more complicated than it was before. Then the next question is, well, the book min tax does take into account CFC earnings. So does that make it a good CFC regime for purposes of Pillar 2, like the subpart F regime in the U.S. and the guilty regime in the U.S.? And that, I think there's a very good chance that the Bookman tax, because it picks up CFC earnings, would be viewed as a good CFC tax regime where the taxes paid at the U.S. level would be pushed down to the CFC, similar to the rules for other CFC tax regimes. But there is a question on how that's exactly done. That detail needs to be worked out on how the taxes would be pushed down. Okay, so let me see if I can mentally chart this out so that we think it is a good covered tax and the covered tax is an issue with respect to the U.S. tax return, whether the U.S. taxpayer itself is paying a sufficient amount of tax under Pillar 2. Also, if we're looking at is this a good IIR, which we think is potentially questionable, it is a question of whether the U.S., as a direct or indirect parent of a foreign subsidiary has enough of a top up so that the foreign subsidiary jurisdictions, even if they float below the 15%, if there are sufficient taxation on those earnings. On the other hand, if you look at the QDMTT, I think that is a question of whether the U.S. has paid a sufficient amount of tax assuming that it itself is a subsidiary of, say, a foreign shareholder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If the issue is that maybe it's not an IIR and you could get leakage there in terms of multiple hits on tax to try and get you up to whatever the global min tax is under many different paradigms that can apply, to me, what that means is that if you have a sandwich structure, so foreign-based multinational, U.S. holding company operations, whatnot, and then foreign in your org chart subsidiaries underneath the U.S., and you have an issue that you're not sure whether those subsidiaries underneath the U.S. are subject to 15% in and of themselves, I think maybe it's time to think about out from under planning and trying to get those subsidiaries out from under the United States into a separate chain so that you don't end up wondering whether the IIR is okay. Because you got enough to worry about with respect to whether the QDMTT is okay, but you really don't need to double down on your problems. Is that? That makes a lot of sense, Kim. And of course, Pillar 2, as we said, is going to apply to a lot more taxpayers than the bookman tax. The scope is much broader, so that type of planning should be kept in mind. One nuance to what you just said, you should also consider that if you had a sandwich structure and the book min tax was applied at the U.S. level, any taxes paid with respect to COC earnings, that 
those are likely to be able to be pushed down into the foreign jurisdictions, which would make them less likely to be subject to an IR, for example, above the U.S. entity in the sandwich structure. But a lot of factors to consider in looking at whether you'd want to keep your sandwich structure. And of course, in general, from an underplanning can make a lot of sense, and especially since a very limited number of taxpayers will be both in the Bookman tax and Pillar 2. And if you're just in Pillar 2, then that makes a whole lot of sense. Right. Okay. Exactly. So maybe just step back a little bit and think about the U.S.'s position, certainly with regard to Pillar 2, is somewhat open. And now we have the min tax. We've gone through a number of spots here where we've got some overlap or questions. And it looks like in a number of spots in the min tax, they've kind of kicked it back to Treasury to say, hey, help us come up with some rules to manage some of this. It's interesting. There are 17 grants of authority in the book min tax that are given to Treasury and IRS. That's an astounding number for that many pages of <laughs> statutory <laughs> test, depending on how you printed it out. From a timing perspective, I think this is a year's type question, not necessarily a month's question to get through all of this. Yeah, great point. I mean, this regime kicks in starting in 2023, which is less than a half year away. So, so more to come. It's more to come. <laughs> so miles to go before anyone sleeps. We'll keep you posted. And in the meantime, be good, stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.